Amen. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, thanks, worship team, for rolling with me there. You guys are awesome. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Tony, uh, and if you're new visiting Wellspring, we're so glad you're here. I have the privilege of being on staff here, and uh, we are in our journey through 1 Corinthians. If you're new, joining us. So glad to have you. Uh, it's called Messy Church, Merciful God. Now, we're in, entering into chapter 11, and if you've been with us the whole time, you know 1 Corinthians is all about division. And Paul writing to the Corinthians saying, hey guys, how do we get more unified? How do we move together? And as we enter chapter 11, what we're going to see is that it really centers on division as it surfaces in worship. The beginning of 11 is about attire for men and women as they prophesy and pray. And as we get to the second half of 11, it's all about the Lord's Supper. Now, if you remember, way back a long time ago, uh, before COVID, right, we would celebrate communion here and we celebrate it twice a month. And one of the things we did is we would have, you know, the bread and the wine up here, not my tea, but I'll have that here just in case the smoke gets to me. Anyway, so you have the bread and wine up here and, you know, we'd invite everyone to come forward at the same time. And the reason we did that is a way of saying, hey, all of us together as one body, we are coming to receive, remember, and put Jesus at the center, right? It was this symbol. It was a time of unity expressing that we are one in Jesus. Just as there is one loaf at the table that Jesus breaks from, there is one body. But what we see in 1 Corinthians 11 is that there's divisions happening even in the Lord's Supper, even as they are trying to remember Jesus through communion. And what happens is, actually, their communion celebration mirrors Corinthian society and their sort of wealth and influence and status infrastructure and hierarchy more than it does the kingdom of God. And so what Paul does, he writes this letter, part of this letter, directed towards divisions happening during communion. And this is what he writes. This is Chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, I do not condemn you or commend you, because when you are together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right, so there's, there's a lot of pieces moving here. Uh, and right, for us, we need to sort of remember, right, their context is different than ours. Generally, if you've grown up in the church, you've done some sort of communion service, usually on a Sunday morning, and, you know, you gather maybe once a month uh, here at Wellspring, right, every other week. If you grew up in a Catholic tradition, maybe it was every week, you'd come to a church building and you would celebrate communion. You'd have bread and wine. It was a little different in the first century. So for us, we might think, how is anyone, one, like not hungry after communion? Like how many laps would you have to do to the front with little bites of bread to really get full? Or like get drunk, like 
we use grape juice, but if you were in a sort of a wine tradition, like how many times would you have to loop around with a sip of wine or dunking the bread in order to get drunk, right? Like it's hard to even fathom like someone getting full or drunk in communion the way we do it. But if you remember, right back in the first century, there were no separate buildings for Christian worship, right? So when people gathered, they gathered in a home. And it would have taken place, right? They would have had a communal meal during which they would have celebrated the Lord's Supper. Kind of like Jesus, remember? The first time Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper, right? They were at dinner. It was likely a Passover dinner. The night before Jesus was killed, there was already bread on the table. There was already wine on the table. And he celebrated the meal in the midst of a meal. So the issue at Corinth wasn't that they were celebrating communion during a meal, That's how every single church in the first century celebrated communion. The trouble was what they were doing during those meals. So I want you to imagine this. You're in Corinth, right? There's no church buildings. So what do you do? Well, there's a wealthy person generally in the congregation who has a villa that's big enough to accommodate the church. Let's say there's 50 people in the church. So the church shows up at the door and You know, there's a dining room, but the dining room accommodates about nine people, and those people would be laying on couches, right? That's how they did dinner. Uh, So they'd sort of, nine people would be there, and then they'd have like an atrium area, and the atrium is sort of an outside space, maybe a pool in the middle, like 30 to 40 people standing could go there. And so what happens is, you imagine you have a wealthy owner of the villa who is the host of the church, and in Corinth, what he does is he grabs his wealthy friends and he grabs maybe the other wealthy folks that he wants to make social connections with, business connections, whatever. And those people, those nine, they go into the dining room. And they lay together and they're eating and it's amazing, right? And then you have the other 30 to 40 now who are outside and they're of less social status. They're poorer and they're in the atrium, they're standing. But it's not just couches versus standing. The food in the dining room is also better, way better. There is more of it, and they get better wine, right? If you're out in the atrium, you get less food, worse of it, and not as much wine, and certainly lower quality. Now, I, I think I was trying to think of like a metaphor. It's sort of like flying uh, in a plane, right? It's like you can go economy or first class, right? If you're in economy, there's not very much room. You have very little leg room. The food is okay, right? Service is not as good, but I flew first class one time in my life. And the only reason I flew first class really was because uh, I think the airline made a mistake. So the first class tickets were actually cheaper than economy. And we were flying to Nicaragua. Uh, So it was Jeannie, so my wife, Jeannie and I and our daughter Claire, and we were up in first class. And it was incredible. I mean, the food was better, right? Like the stewards and stewardesses were just like totally there for your every need. You could like lounge. It was amazing. And basically, in the first century, in Corinth, they have like a first-class economy class thing when it comes to church and communion. Worse still, what's happening is you have some of these rich folks that have way more discretion with their time. So they show up at an hour that some of the folks that are poorer, that are working class, that can't get off work, they can't arrive on time. But instead of waiting, the rich folks, right, they just start chowing down. 
So they're eating, they're drinking, and by the time some of the poorer folks get off of work and are able to make it, they're already full, they've eaten all the food, and they're a little bit tipsy. Paul says they're even drunk. Now for us, we think of this and we're like, are you serious? Like really, this is what it was like? But if you go back to their context, every social gathering they had in their houses, right, outside of church, was all about gaining or maintaining status. So literally, if you went to a party in first century Corinth, every single person would be ranked according to their status, their wealth, their influence, and their power, right? And if you were, if you were ranked high enough, you'd end up in the dining room, right? If you weren't, you'd be in the atrium. You wouldn't get as good of food, and you certainly wouldn't get as much. So they're just thinking, hey, this is just how it works, And this is why Paul writes this section of 1 Corinthians 11. He's trying to help the church at Corinth say, see that like the kingdom of God, the church, the people of God are not meant to mirror the society in which they're in. They're meant to be different. In verse 19, Paul says, hey guys, there are factions among you. And this word factions uh, is the word heresies in Greek, where we get the word heresy in English. But in the ancient world, right, heresy actually referred to sociological divisions, right? So, divisions based on power and wealth and status. And Paul's saying, guys, you cannot have these kind of factions among you. You got to stop doing that. Five times in 1 Corinthians 17 through 34, Paul will use this word. It's synerkestai, which is basically to gather or to be united in verses 17, 18, 20, 33, and 34. And the thing that's interesting about this verb is it has two different meanings. It can mean like to gather, so to like physically show up together, or be united. And Paul is using this verb in a way to say, you guys gather, but you're not united. So he's kind of playing off of this multiple meanings. And then to drive this point home, Right, trying to help them realize that in verse 23 to 26, he's trying to remind them, like, the point of these gatherings is not social networking. The point of these gatherings is to remember Jesus, to center ourselves on Jesus, right? As the song said, to build our life on Jesus. So Paul goes over then the tradition he received and then passed on to them. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup in my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. All right, so verse 23, Paul is trying to remind them, right, that he received a tradition from the Lord and then he delivered it to the Corinthians. And this combination of these words, received, <coughs> sorry, the smoke kind of, it tickles my throat. <clears> throat> When these words are together, received and then delivered, what Paul is saying is that he has, um, when they're found together in this way, 
right, they denote the transmission of a living tradition. So what Paul is saying is when those words are together in ancient Greek, it's communicating, hey, I gave this on to you so that you could live into it, which they're clearly straying from. Now, if you're sort of new to this language of the Lord's Supper, whatever, communion, uh, this is echoing back to Jesus' final meal with His disciples, right? It's the night before He will be crucified, and it's the week of Passover. Likely, this is a Passover dinner, right? They're all kind of laying down around the food and eating, and Jesus grabs, right, some of the unleavened bread at the table, and He gives thanks, and then He breaks it and distributes it. Just as an aside, uh, when Jesus says that He uh, gives thanks, that verb is Eucharisto in Greek. This is why Catholics call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. Um, it's also just sort of terminology-wise. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10.16, he asks this question, right? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word participation in Greek is the word koinonia, which also means communion, right? So this is why churches use different terms, right? Lord's Supper, Eucharist, and communion. They're all biblical, uh, they all come from biblical words related to it, but this is why we kind of use them interchangeably. All right, back to the point. So he grabs the bread, he breaks it, and he says, right, this is my body, which is for you. Right? Do this in remembrance of me. Now, at the time, right, Jesus hadn't been crucified, right? So the disciples there, they don't know exactly what he is referring to. Right? But the next day, he'll be tortured, humiliated, and crucified. Right? He will give his body, represented by the bread, to be broken right, for us, right? for our benefit, right? to reconcile us to the Father, to break the power of sin in our lives, and to break the power of evil in the world. And so every time we go to the bread and we remember Him, we remember those things, the ways He's given Himself for us, right? Then after supper, some time has passed, right? He takes the cup of wine, which is already on the table, right? He grabs the wine. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, right? In my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. But sometimes when you read this, you're, I don't know, at least for me, I'm like, well, so what is he talking about when he's talking about sort of the new covenant in my blood, right? If you're not used to that language, it can be a little confusing. And maybe the simplest way to explain it is this, right? God made these covenants, legal agreements with the people of Israel. He made one with Noah. He made one with Abraham. He made one with David. Right? And these covenants were never really intended to last forever. They were meant to be fulfilled, right? and that happens through the person of Jesus. Right? And then through Jesus, on His death on the cross, in His blood, as His blood is spilled out, right, God creates a new covenant. Right? And this isn't something that Christians just thought up in the first century. They're like, oh, this would be a cool idea. Right? The prophets actually anticipated this. Jeremiah is a great example. This is kind of a long quote, but it's an important one. This is from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Right? So there's this old covenant that the people of Israel broke that God fulfills through Jesus. Verse 33, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, but they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, when you drink this wine, when you take this cup, right, you're remembering that we are in a new covenant where God forgives our sins, right, where God interacts with us in this intimate way where He writes on our hearts, He transforms us from the inside out. Right? And this is the shaping covenant of our lives. When we come to the table and we remember the blood, we remember the wine, we remember Jesus, and we remember that this is the shaping covenant of our lives that is defined by God's mercy and grace as He gives Himself on the cross that we might enter into this new covenant, this new relationship with God. And Paul says next, right, that when we celebrate communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. He's saying that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we actually are doing is we are proclaiming the gospel, the good news. Often we don't think about it in these terms, but Paul is reminding the Corinthians, hey, guys, this isn't just a personal experience. It's It's a proclamation of the greatest truth in the world. That when we come together as one body, unified on Jesus, centering our life on Him and His sacrifice, we are making a statement to one another and to the world that Jesus' sacrifice is the most important event in history. That the past hinges on God's coming in Jesus and the future is shaped by Him as well. So contextually, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, hey guys, don't just host dinner parties. This is about remembering Jesus and proclaiming His kingdom, shaped and defined by His sacrifice. And this is why in verses 27 to 34, he focuses on, hey guys, this is serious. You should be examining yourselves as you enter into it. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus, of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, 
so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. All right, so there's lots going on there. We can't get into every nuance. But big picture, what we can say is Paul is saying, hey, guys, you cannot celebrate communion in the way that you would do sort of just normal dinner parties, social functions, based on this social hierarchy. Right? We need to base it on the kingdom of God. He's telling them that when they approach the Lord's Supper, they need to approach it with a bit more seriousness. They need to examine themselves. They need to make sure that they're eating and drinking in a way that is worthy of the kingdom. And it, I think, it's, honestly, it shouldn't surprise us that there is so much language here about judgment either. Because if you actually read the Old Testament prophets, right, sit down, take a summer, take the fall, read through the prophets, right, God is often telling the Hebrew people, like, guys, it's great that you're gathering, it's great that you're throwing these festivals, it's great that you're singing these songs for me, but when you neglect the poor in your midst, it sort of doesn't make me happy. Amos is a good example. This is from the prophet Amos. He says this, I hate, this is from God saying to the people of Israel through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He's like, hey guys, that's great. You're throwing this party for me. You're gathering for assembly to sing songs, to worship me. That's awesome. Don't neglect the poor, right? And what, is, what are the first Corinthians doing? The Corinthians, right? What are they doing? They're holding these dinner parties. They think they're doing what they're supposed to. And in the midst of it, they're creating divisions along sociological, socioeconomic and status lines. Are you going to Jesus in the first century, right? He goes up to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he's like, that's great, you guys. You tithe off of your garden. You give a little bit to God of your mint and your dill, right, and your basil or whatever. But he says, that's great. But you're neglecting justice and mercy. This is why Paul in verse 17 says, when you come together, right, it is not for the better, but for the worse, Right, just like in the time with Amos, right? God is like, hey, why don't you focus on justice and mercy? Right? It's great you're doing these things, but you're not actually helping yourselves. You're not actually pleasing me, says God. Now, sometimes, just full disclosure, when I read this, sometimes I think like, I don't know, do I want to celebrate communion? Because it makes me a little nervous. Like maybe my heart is not in the right place. It kind of actually sometimes when I read this, I get into this like a little bit of a performancey thing. Like, oh, I need to check all the right boxes. I need to be perfect before I can come to communion. But I don't think that is also what Paul is saying. Right? When we come to the Lord's Supper, Jesus is the host. Right? This is clearly the focus of the tradition that Paul has been handed, that he's delivered to the Corinthians. It is all about Jesus. His body, His blood, His sacrifice, His new covenant, His grace. And our role, right, is it's not to be perfect. What we are meant to do is one body, 
equal and united, submit our lives to the Father, to fall on our face before God. Not perfect, but in submission and humility, recognizing that, man, we are broken, imperfect people and we fall at the foot of Jesus for grace. And if you think about it, go back to the first Lord's Supper, the first time, right? Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room. And remember who's there, right? Judas is there. Judas is about to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver so that Jesus will be humiliated, tortured, and executed. And it's not like Jesus goes, my blood, you know, my, my body broken for you to all of the disciples and then ignores Jesus, no, or Judas. He actually says to Judas, Judas, you know, my body broken for you. Even in that moment, even when Judas is about to betray him, he already has the plan in the works, but Judas is given a choice at that moment. He's given a choice. Judas, you can keep going through with your plan. Or you can receive from me. You can let go of what that plan was. You can fall on your face before me. You can reorient your life around me, not around your plan and what you think is best. Right In the same way, communion is a time when we are offered a choice. It's not a place to be perfect. It's an opportunity to re-again align our hearts and our lives with Jesus and His kingdom. It's an opportunity for us in all of our imperfections to fall before the throne of grace and say, Lord, help me. Here I am again. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is not looking for perfection. But Paul is clear, right? To eat in any other way is to eat unworthily without recognizing that we are sinful, broken people. Right, to eat in a way that we think we can just sort of, you know, the first Corinthians, they're just like, they're just like throwing these parties, like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. And Paul's like, hey guys, that's not what we are called to. And we are called to look at our own sins and to ask for help. We are called when we come to communion, right, to not uh, segregate based on socioeconomic lines, based on wealth and status and power, but come before Jesus as one body, all submitted before the throne of grace, all, right, as one people, equal and united, all sinful, all falling at the feet of Jesus saying, Lord, help us. We want you to be the center. We want to build our life on you. And this is why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 17 through 34. He wants them to recenter their lives on Jesus, right? not focused on all these divisions, but to reground themselves. And the question then for us is how does this then translate into our life? Now, on one level, we could certainly talk about uh, God's love for the poor, God's love for the marginalized. This is a huge biblical theme. But I don't think it's Paul's primary point in 1 Corinthians 11. I think his primary point is around the Lord's Supper 
and around division. And the truth is, right, this actually relates to us. Because one of the really sad things, right, is Paul wrote this text to the church saying, hey guys, you are one body. Let's not divide. And yet, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, throughout history, there have been so much division. I thought it might be helpful just to kind of do, to sort of set the stage a little bit, do a little bit of review on like what are the four main views of communion because there's a ton of division here. Uh, I thought it might be helpful just to sort of set that stage real quick um, because a lot's happened, right, since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11. So throughout history, there are four major views that hit the contemporary scene uh, when it comes to communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. The first is called transubstantiation. This was developed by Aquinas in the 13th century. Um, What's unique about it is Aquinas would say this. So when we celebrate communion and, you know, we break the bread and offer it and you receive it, Aquinas would say this might look like a piece of bread. It has feels like bread, it tastes like bread, but really... This is the physical, this is important, physical body of Jesus. Okay? Physical. Tastes like bread, smells like bread, but it is the physical body of Jesus. The wine. When it's poured out and you drink it, it might taste like wine, it might taste like grape juice, it might have the consistency, it might even quench your thirst. But I just want you to know, right? Aquinas would say, no, that is actually the physical body blood of Jesus, right? That's transubstantiation. Now, Luther comes along in the 16th century, and he says, well, that's not exactly it. It's a thing called consubstantiation. This becomes a major view, right, through the Reformation in the Lutheran church. And what you'd say is, when you pick up this bread, it's bread. But there's the physical body of Jesus that surrounds this bread, that's under this bread, that's on the sides of this bread. So there is bread here, but the physical, real presence of Jesus is in this bread or around it, right? Same with the wine, over and under and on the side, right? All kinds of divisions in church history, consubstantiation versus transubstantiation. There's this other guy around the same time named Zwingli. And Zwingli says, no, 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 you guys, that's not how it is. Really, this is just bread. It's just bread. And this is just wine. And that these are just symbols. They're symbols that help us to remember Jesus. You know, and if you've gone into evangelical churches or non-denominational churches, that often is the view. There's another view, though. This is a Reformed view or Calvin's view, right? It's also 16th century. These last three views, right? Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli all develop around the same time. Calvin's view is this. All right, so this this is just bread, just bread. But when you come up and receive this bread, you do just receive bread, but the real presence of Jesus in the Spirit actually is with you in a profound and unique way. The risen Jesus, not His physical presence, But the presence of the risen Jesus, 
He's physically seated at the right hand of the Father, but spiritually, He is with you in the midst of communion in a profound and real way. And the truth is, wars have been fought over these four views. So much division has happened over these four views. And depending on your background, you might lean one way or another. And obviously, we can't unpack it theologically all this morning. Literally, there are libraries full of this debate. Personally, I can say that for me, um, I really appreciate the balance of Calvin's view or the Reformed view. This idea of like, it is bread. You know, we can taste it. It actually is bread. Um, But Jesus is really with us in a profound way. His Spirit is with us in a profound way through communion. Right? Memorialism or Zwingli's view, like there is a spiritual truth that like this is a symbol But I think there's something more going on at communion than simply a symbolic representation. I do think the Spirit of God is with us in a unique way as we celebrate communion, right? He really is the bread of life. He's not just a symbol of it. He literally is with us in the midst of celebrating communion. Now, wherever you land, though, I find it striking, right? The church is called to be one body under Jesus, right? And the the act of communion is meant to actually proclaim this unity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. He actually connects the one loaf with the oneness of the body. So, in communion, one of the things we proclaim is our unity. And yet, in Corinth in the first century and throughout church history, the church has divided over this. And yet, I think if you went, I was thinking about this week, if you went and polled the Corinthians and were like, hey, are you guys trying to create division here? I think two and T, they would all be like, no, what are you talking about? We're just doing what everyone does. And if you went to churches throughout history that are literally like hate each other over this practice, and you ask them, why are you doing this? None of them would be like, oh, I'm just trying to create division. I really get a kick out of it. Right? They would say, oh, no, this is true. I'm defending what is true. I'm defending a value. I'm defending the Scriptures. And I think it's true in our, our time, too, whether it's communion or other things. Like, very rarely, like, if we went around and I said to you, you know, look at the ways you're creating division in this church, most of us would be like, hmm, I guess I'm not really creating any division. I guess I'm good. Check that box, you know, we're good. Because most people are not trying to create division. So as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, well, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the better question is, what are you doing? What am I doing to foster unity in this body? Right? If the goal is to be unified around the elements, what are we doing to actually promote and foster and build unity and oneness in this body? Right? Unity isn't simply the absence of conflict. It is not simply the absence of division. Right? It is a presence. It is something that brings us together that we actually proclaim to the world. Right? If you were to look back on the last month, What are you doing in this place to build a sense of oneness, to foster a sense of unity? Not the absence of conflict, but the presence of peace and oneness and unity in this body.
I think the truth is, right, with COVID, with fires, with smoke, it's so easy to get focused on all the other things. You're just sort of in maintenance mode. And it's at this time that I think we drift and division can so easily sleep, seep into our marriages, into our small groups, into our church bodies. What are we doing in the midst of this season when we can drift apart? What are we doing to build this body so that we are more and more together? I would invite you this week, take some time, pray about it. What are, what are two or three things you could do over the next few weeks to actually build and foster unity in this body? Right? When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right, we proclaim His death until He comes. We proclaim our oneness. We proclaim our unity to a divided world. We live in a world right now that is so divided. People are at each other's throats about politics and all kinds of things. What does it look like for the church to have an effective witness to the unity that we are one church under one Lord in one kingdom? I think that's the first question from the application side, from the everyday life side. Like, what are you doing to foster unity? The second one is this. Right, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of everything, like I just think there's so much that can sort of take the focus, that can take center stage in our life. And the question is this, is Jesus the center of your life right now? Right, in Corinth, they were sort of going about getting in dinner parties, right? The food, the festival, the social networking, right, became the center. And Paul brings them back and says, hey guys, the point of communion is to recenter ourselves on Jesus and His sacrifice, to reground our lives in Him. Beasley Murray in his commentary on John writes this, what we have to do with His flesh and blood is not only chew and swallow, but recognize in His crucified body and poured out blood the ground of our life that we hang our faith and our hope on that body and on that blood, right? The Lord's Supper reminds us that our hope and our faith, they hinge on Jesus, that He is the center, right? In 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 11, right? They're getting focused on all kinds of other things, status, wealth, all these other things, right? Those become the center and they distract. Right, in Amos, and the ancient Israelites, right, they're getting focused on all these other things, and they're neglecting the real heart of God in the midst of it. Right, same with the Pharisees. So often we approach life, one of the frames we use here at Wellspring is like this contrast between bounded set and centered set, right? Bounded set is this idea of you're either in or you're out. So imagine it like a circle, right, and you're either in or you're out. You do the right actions, Right? The Corinthians are like, hey, we're gathering. We're celebrating communion. Right? We're doing the right thing. We're in. We're good. And Paul's like, hey, you guys, you're looking at it the wrong way. Right? Ancient Israel, right? they thought they were doing the right things. They were doing the festivals. They were doing the songs. Right? They were using the right instruments. And God's like, hey, guys, you're missing the point. Right? Same with the Pharisees. Right? They're tithing on every herb in their garden, and yet they're neglecting justice and mercy. And Paul's like, and Jesus is like, hey, you guys are missing the point. In a bounded set world, you're so focused on doing the right things, you're checking the right boxes, that you often lose the point, the center, the real meaning behind what you're doing. And this happens in religious communities all the time. 
Another way to look at the spiritual life is centered set, right? So Jesus and his kingdom are in the center, and whether you're far away or close, the question is not whether you're in or you're out, but are you centered on the person of Jesus, and are you moving closer to him? Right, Paul's like, to the first Corinthians, the Corinthians, he's like, hey guys, are you actually centering your life on Jesus? Remember, that's the point of communion. Recenter our lives on Jesus and his sacrifice. Right? It's this regular reminder of who is God and who is not. And I think one of the things about COVID and the fires and the smoke and all that's going on is so easy to focus on other things, to make other things the center. Right? We can make safety the center. We're just trying to remain safe. We can make distraction the center. All I am trying to do is make it through another day. If I need to watch five Netflix videos or whatever it is, like that's what I'm going to do. Just trying to keep my head down and make it through. And I guess I would just ask us, right, in this season, it's unprecedented. Most of us are not sure how to handle it. Are we willing to make Jesus the center today? Right, that He is the hinge of our hope. Right, that He is the one that we rely on, trust on, right? And that's what communion is for, is to recenter us into Him. This doesn't matter whether you've attended church for the last 25 years or this is your first time tuning into a church service ever, right? The question is the same for us. Are we willing to make Jesus and His kingdom the center of our lives? Not because we're perfect, because we are willing to fall on our face in the presence of God and say, God, I want to submit my life to you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I invite you, right, if, if you're wondering, how do I do that? Well, why don't you celebrate communion? Whether you're on your own or with your family, get out the elements Get out some grape juice. If you don't have grape juice, use water. Use whatever you have in your house, right? Jesus grabbed the element that was on the table. Grab the liquid on the table and use that, right? Jesus grabbed the bread that was on the table. Use the bread that's on the table. Celebrate communion as a way to recenter your life in Jesus. It is one of the ways that we remember both corporately as a big body, but we can use it as a tool as individuals and as families as a way to recenter our lives in a world that is so chaotic right now where we need a center, we need a foundation, we need someone that we can lean into and say, all right, God, I trust in you. And if you're looking for a corporate expression, it's one of the reasons we're going to start doing these outdoor worship times. Right, so this next Saturday at 6 p.m., we're going to gather on, between the two buildings outside, and we're going to celebrate communion together as a way of being together, as a way of unifying ourselves in Jesus together. I'd like to just invite the worship team up as we lean into this text and in God's presence. I just think this is an opportunity for us so just take stock of like, where are we? How are we sowing a sense of oneness in this large body? And how are we centering ourselves on the person of Jesus in this season? Right, because we're separated from each other physically. What does it look like for us to lean together and be one, even in the midst of this? 
What does it look like for us to center our lives on Jesus when there's so many other things that can take our focus and distract us and pull us away from Him? What does it look like to center our lives on Him and move towards Him when there's so many other things that are pulling at our heart and our mind and our bodies? As we enter into worship, God, we ask that you would just prove your faithfulness to us again. God, you would show us again and afresh and anew today that you are good and that you are faithful. May we look to your sacrifice on the cross as a reminder of your love for us, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And today, while we are still sinners, while we are still a broken, wayward people, you, Jesus, give yourself to us right now. Whether we've been caught up in addictions, whether we've just been distracted and on our own, lost, you give yourself to us today, Jesus. Jesus, you are our life. You are the one who quenches the thirst in us. God, come. Show up again. We need you, Lord.